do we move? What parts of the brain control our bodies? And how are electrode implants giving people with spinal cord injuries the ability to walk again? I'm Anna Machen, and I'm an evolutionary anthropologist. In this series from the Bertarelli Foundation, I'm going behind the scenes of some of the most cutting-edge neuroscience research to explore our brains, from before birth to after death. And this week, we're looking at the neuroscience of movement. Even drinking our tea or coffee, sitting here, you know, just lifting your cup is involving millions of these neurons to be able to do this. So our system uses a paddle of electrodes that is implanted in the spinal canal. When I see myself, uh, I feel very emotional. My face speaks for, for me. This is how we're wired. When we think of our bodies and how we move them, it's easy to think purely about our muscles. Our legs ache as we climb the stairs, or our arms and back strain as we pick up a box. But behind the scenes, our brains are also working incredibly efficiently and precisely, allowing us to move with apparent ease. But that's not the case for everyone. There are lots of conditions that can cause movement to become difficult or even impossible. Injuries to the spinal cord, that crucial nerve system that carries messages and instructs the muscles how to move, are famous for causing paralysis and limiting mobility. At least, until now. The footsteps you hear in the background? That's the sound of the first person in the world with a completely severed spinal cord walking. His name is Michelle. Welcome. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you. Michelle lives in northern Italy in a gorgeous house split into family apartments overlooking beautiful mountains that, unfortunately, yes. we couldn't see. Well, sometimes you can see all the mountains. Uh, yeah. It's uh, very... Shame uh, it's misty. Uh, it's not the best weather. Right? No, it's not. Uh, we can use our imagination. Uh, yes. <laughs> we headed downstairs with Michelle's brother Manuel to a beautifully crafted room. I love, I love the wall. My father is... Uh, it's your builder. Yeah. Oh, oh, wow. This is amazing. Complete with fireplace, pizza oven and bottles of wine lining the wall. And we settle down to hear Michelle's story. I had an accident with my motorbike here close to my home, caused by an animal that crossed my road and made me to lose the control of my motorbike. So I crashed against a bench. During this crash, the bones of my back explode. One of these bones goes to the cutting my, my spinal cord. And uh, this happened during the night. So I was alone and uh, I had to, to call by myself the ambulance. I had to, to move myself with the harps because inside the motorbike there was my phone. And uh, doing these things, I think also uh, compromised my lesion because the motorbike was far away. In this period, uh, I was uh, a student, I was doing the economy study. This accident was uh, a shock of my plan of my life. I stayed for uh, around six months in the hospital. I was speaking with the doctor. They told me that uh, with this kind of lesion, it was uh, impossible to walk again. Despite the severity of Michelle's accident, he and his tight-knit family were determined to remain positive. Also, when I was in the hospital... Uh, I stay with the other patient that have the same uh, accident like mine. The mood was very down, so very sad people. And the uh, fact that I, my goal is to have something to do every day, every moment, in order to 
to don't think too much. Yeah, so it's distracting mm-hmm. you from what you're doing. In fact, I went also during my uh, hospitalization. I went to do my last exam with the ambulance. You I went was, in an ambulance to your yes, last I, exam. I, I, yes, I went to the university with all the flavor, etc. And during, wow. I, I, do, I did my last exam. And he ended up passing with the maximum score. Even after leaving the hospital, Michel, who was always into fitness, kept working to expand his rehab exercises and preserve strength where he could, including maintaining his athletic physique, sometimes using unusual techniques. On my planning of training, I also uh, looking for uh, the training of the astronaut. Okay. Because when they come back from space, they lose the muscle stone and they make a specific exercise and uh, I try to look what kind of exercise they are doing and uh, I reproduce by myself because uh, I know that, okay, now it's uh, just a quiet moment of my life, mm. but I have to be ready to stand up again and uh, walking again. In the meantime, he and his brother dedicated themselves to learning about the brain and the neuroscience of movement, looking for answers which led them to a conference. Appears uh, a slide on the screen of the conference and uh, was about the, the study that they are doing in uh, Lausanne. Immediately, my brother and I, we look in uh, our eyes and, okay, this is a very good solution. When uh, my brother looked at this slide, he go on the internet and uh, immediately contacted the, the team. Uh, <laughs> and uh, in order to, to candidate yeah, myself... Not a for, moment to lose, yeah. ...for uh, this uh, clinical trial. The confidence slide they saw described a new method for artificially stimulating the muscles in the lower body, allowing the legs to move. When scientists talk about how we move, they often use the phrase motor system, and it really is a system. Although taking a step or stretching your arm might feel automatic and natural, it's ultimately only the output of a highly complex machine working away undercover. I wanted to know more about how this system works. So we headed to Campus Biotech in Geneva, Switzerland to sit down with someone who has dedicated their career to understanding just that. My name is Mackenzie Mathis. I'm a neuroscientist. I study the motor system and all things related to learning in the motor system. I'm very fascinated by understanding how the brain actually orchestrates this really complex system, but with ease. The big question, how do we move? Can you take us through the systems that are involved in allowing us to move? The motor system is very complex and it's fascinating, right? I mean, I might be biased as as someone who studies this for a living, but in general, most people think of the system as the brain and the spinal cord, which is a really crucial part. And so the spinal cord houses these neurons or these cell types that are called motor neurons that project all the way out to the muscles in your limbs. So if you're sitting and thinking about this in your own body, in your spine, there are these neurons that actually go all the way from you know your back in the spinal cord to the tips of your fingers to these muscles. So they can be these really long and beautiful neurons that their job is to control the muscles. And of course, the muscles have sensory information that's coming back in. So you have this first loop of communication at this level. And then you have this neural signaling, sending little communication packets of information up to the brain. And then the brain has to essentially make sense of where your body is in the world and what you want to do next. So it's quite complicated because you need to be able to take in sensory information. You need to understand the state of your body and your wishes. Like, what do you want to actually move, right? Much like riding a bike. When you're little, you have to think about left, right, left, right. But your brain is doing this all the time and we're not thinking about it, right? Even drinking our tea or coffee sitting here 
you know, just lifting your cup is involving millions of these neurons to be able to do this. Okay. So from the moment I decide I want to pick my cup of tea up, what happens? Right. So from the moment you decide that you actually want to make an action, you have areas in the brain, so in the frontal part of the brain, that effectively make a motor plan, right? You need to make a simulation of the trajectory or the movement through space that you actually want to do. This is sent to a region that's called the motor cortex. This is integrated then also with sensory information. You can really think of the motor cortex as this hub that ultimately needs to integrate this information, and then it gives the go signal. And so then you have neurons that are in the motor cortex that project not only to many other areas of the brain to let them know, hey, I'm going to move, <laughs> right? Like your, your visual system needs to know if your head is going to move, for example. Um, but ultimately, it sends signals to the spinal cord. And so you have at different levels uh, down your whole spinal cord, these then other motor neurons, which are called conveniently lower motor neurons, <laughs> that actually then send out information packets to the muscle. And then the muscle contracts and you move. That then sends a cascade of sensory signals back into the motor system. And this process then continues constantly online <laughs> to effectively integrate sensory information, decision-making variables, and to plan the next movement and execute it. Is the motor cortex a particular area of the brain or is it something that's diffused throughout the brain? That's a great question. So the motor cortex is a particular area of the brain. So in humans and in non-human primates, there's actually this really beautiful strip that's sort of uh, midway a little bit in front of your ears, behind your eyes, but there's this uh, gorgeous strip on both sides. And so you have a left and a right hemisphere in your brain. And then it's actually involved in more left versus right uh, control of your body as well. So it's also has some symmetry there. So if we imagine doing what might be seen as quite a complex motor movement, for example, I don't know, playing a musical instrument, how do you make all those different muscles and all those different systems actually coordinate together so we get that smooth movement? It's a fantastic question. No, I mean, the number of muscles, uh, bones, and degrees of freedom, right? Like just the number of joints that are involved to move your arm uh, or to play the piano, it's it's an unbelievable scale. It's a really hard challenge to know. And so we think that not only, of course, do we have a motor cortex, there's other areas of the brain, like the cerebellum that sort of sits in the back of your brain that actually houses nearly half of all the neurons in your brain. We really think this is crucially involved in making smooth movements over time. So you can think about that you have this other area of the brain that acts like a filter of sorts, right? It's taking these signals, these packets of information, and trying to quickly make movements and coordinate them across. So I think a, a nice example that if you've ever seen it is a baby elephant, right? So, so an elephant's trunk is like has crazy degrees of freedom, so many muscles, so many movements that it has to do. And much like young babies and humans, they're just trying to understand, like, what is this thing attached to me? and <laughs> How can I effectively control it? Because this has to be learned. Like, the brain essentially needs to understand this whole body plan to the level down to this complex muscle orchestra. So you, you need your maestro to really <laughs> learn this. So you effectively have the motor cortex and the cerebellum constantly in play trying to say, what do I want to do? How do I do it? And how do I do it smoothly? For Mackenzie, the most interesting part of the motor system is something that most of us rarely think about. And it's called adaptive movement. So for me, adaptive movement is really about trying to understand how we move in the world and literally can just change our movements on the fly in these really short timescales. So this is different than, say, learning to play tennis where, you know, there's that you need 10,000 hours of practice to get this right. And that's not wrong, right? Like there's a lot of studies to show that is there's some of these magic numbers in many ways. 
But I'm more interested in some of the, the, the littler things that actually enable us to have the lifestyles that we do. So coming back to drinking tea, you know, when the volume of the cup actually lowers, the force that you actually need to hold your cup and bring it to your mouth changes. But we don't think about this, right? We just drink the tea. It's not that you have to be like, oh, whoops, hit my face that time because I I wasn't (laughs) anticipating my glass to be empty. Mm. So really quickly, you can essentially make decisions in the motor system in order to enable this adaptive movement. And so simply put, it's really just about studying how we can take information in our environment and then rapidly change our sort of voluntary movement on this basis. Now, the really interesting question becomes is that actually our sensory systems and the way and the length of time that it takes us to act on it is quite slow. So if we think about this in a visual way, you have about 80 milliseconds of delay between you actually seeing something and your brain processing this information. And then it takes another, say, you know, tens of milliseconds to act on that information. And you might be thinking, okay, 100 milliseconds here or there. But this this is actually really could be a problem, right? Like 100 milliseconds is, is not a short amount of time. And so we need to compensate for these delays. Like we, we must have a way to do this. And so the way that we think about this in the motor system, or even more holistically, is that our brains must simulate the world, right? We have to have something like a mental model of the world in order to understand like when we act, what are our sensory consequences? And if it's not instantly as we feel it to be, we need to adapt our movements. We need to change because something's not quite right. Okay, so we have this, we have this simulation in our brain and... Do we have to, let's say, as, as we grow, do we have to learn that simulation, yes. essentially, so that, so that we can react quickly? Exactly. Yeah, exactly. And so there's a lot of interesting studies like across from development to adulthood, right? You have to learn about your own body. You have to have a very good model of your body and also in the world. And so there's a lot of interesting research on thinking about why babies sort of do babbling movements or play. Like, why do we need to play, actually? Like, why do children play? And a lot about it is potentially learning our body map and right and being able to use it or um, as we grow like even in puberty or in adulthood you know you go to the gym and you, you you get more muscle mass that actually changes literally how your motor system would have to control it even on shorter time scales let's say a day you get fatigued you get tired right you're you know we get hangry like all of these things like essentially affect like what we're going to do with our body and so we need to adapt on these sort of short time scales as well or you get injured you you know um, or as simple as changing your shoes, right? I wheel high heels one day and I wear flats the next. It's I don't have to relearn to walk. I just need to have a good model of my body and those shoes. And then I can rapidly adapt to these changes. When trying to move smoothly, the importance of being able to feel our body is never clearer than when you've been sitting awkwardly, developed terrible pins and needles and must hobble around until your foot feels normal again. So what sort of sensory information does your brain use when planning a movement? And how does that relate to spinal cord injuries? Our producer Eva is here to explain. Although many of us will remember being taught about five senses, taste, touch, sight, smell and hearing, there's a sneaky sixth sense called proprioception or kinesthesia too. This is the sense of where your body is in space, in particular your limbs. It's mediated by special nerve cells in muscles, tendons and joints and it's also critical for how our brains create controlled movements of our bodies. 
When we move, the proprioceptive sensory cells in our muscles send information up to the brain via the spinal cord, indicating which muscles are contracting, which are relaxing, and if the limb is moving. The brain then combines that information with other sensory sources, like vision and touch, to understand the body's position and start making a plan of how different muscles must behave in order to create a specific movement. And your brain is integrating all this information and acting on it extremely quickly. Just think how fast you can turn your head to look down the street when you hear a siren or catch a ball thrown in your direction. Even just for walking or standing upright, our brains and spinal cords are using feedback from sensory cells to keep us balanced and using the right amount of force against the floor. But if those connections are severed, like in a spinal cord injury, not only is it impossible for the brain to direct the muscles to move, but it can't feel how the muscles need to move either. The spinal cord is organised into segments, where the cells closer to the pelvis are responsible for sensation and movement of the lower parts of the body, like the legs, and the cells higher up, like at the neck and chest, control the upper limbs. And the anatomy of the spinal cord means that, wherever an injury occurs along the spine, the cells and limbs below it will be affected. Michel had a complete spinal cord injury, meaning he had no remaining connections between his brain and his spinal cord below the injury, which for him was just below his ribcage. So in addition to being unable to move the lower half of his body, he can't feel sensations there either. And when he first wanted to join the clinical trial, they told him his injuries were too severe. Physically, I was uh, very good, but my injury was uh, too bad. Because I, oh, okay. I, I had a completely spinal cord injury and uh, they are looking for something not complete. I continue a lot of kind of training and I had to wait two years, okay. more or less. And after two years, uh, I receive an email. Hello. <laughs> <laughs> it's <once> again. <laughs> uh, if you are still interested, uh, can meet you and uh, maybe you can be to a good participant of this uh, clinical trial. Wow. And, uh, yes. How did you feel when they, when you got the email? I was, uh, oh, <laughs> <laughs> let's go, let's go. Yeah. I, I was ready, so I just, yes, let's, just let's go, let's go, let's go. <laughs> Michelle travelled to Switzerland and after a lot of tests and some training, he underwent surgery to implant electrodes that will stimulate the muscles in his lower body to move. After just two weeks recovery, Michelle was ready to get started. At the beginning, there was 10 or 15 engineers with a lot of physiotherapy. It was a little bit strange. Everything to look at Everyone looking at you. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and then uh, they prepared me. We were putting a lot of sensors in my legs or in my body. The sensors allowed the scientists to pick up how different muscles move during different movements, like how your quadriceps, the muscles at the front of your thighs, lengthen as you squat down and shorten as you stand up. They put him through his paces, trying out different motions and settings until they were ready for him to stand for the first time. The first week, they find the good parameters of the stimulation that allowed to stimulate the good muscles mm. that allowed me to stand up. I, I was wearing a harness, but uh, my legs... With but my... your legs took your weight? Yes, yeah. yes. What did that feel like the first time you stood up? It uh, was a very cool, cool moment, an emotion, a lot of emotional moment. 
and I, when I see myself, uh, yes, it was very emotional. My face speaks for, for me. It was clear from Michelle's face that the emotions of that time are still very much with him. We headed up to Michelle's home gym, where he prepared to give us a demonstration. Here is my paradise, <laughs> my environment. Michelle pulled out a tablet and scrolled through a list of options. Things like walking, stair climbing and even swimming. After selecting walking, he lined himself up with his walker. Okay. And then uh, I just press start. Okay, stand up. Okay. If you see this uh, smaller vibration. Yes. It's the stimulation. That's the stimulation, mm-hmm. okay. And they make uh, this smaller, uh, small shaking. Mm-hmm. At the beginning, it's more uh, evident, but after a while, uh, you see that it decreases even more, and uh, I'm uh, stable. Michelle held a button in each hand, each responsible for one leg. When he pushes the button, it stimulates that leg to move, and he takes a step. Okay, now I'm I'm ready. Michelle walks like this for two hours every single day, sometimes wearing an old anchor chain to increase the weight. I wear this chain so I can improve the muscle stone. He has a big mirror set up in his gym which allows him to see how he's moving his legs. Because he lacks sensation in the lower half of his body, it helps him to have alternative feedback of where his legs are placed. But amazingly, he's starting to feel some sensation again when he's using the stimulation. And then now I feel exactly here the quadriceps. You can feel them? I feel the quadriceps, here the hamstrings, mm-hmm. and also on the bones, I feel uh, the, the weight going on my legs bones. And that's what's increasingly becoming stronger for you. So since you've started doing this, you're getting more and more sensation. Yes, this sensation uh, arrived uh, after a while during the training. Yes. And uh, it's cool. Seeing Michelle stand up and walk was literally breathtaking. Both seeing his legs move on their own and the determination on his face. In addition to walking every day, he spends a lot of time training, building strength and muscle tone and practising with the different settings he has from climbing stairs to literally lifting weights using a leg extension machine. And more unusual settings too. There was a day that I was training in the lab in Swiss. In this day, there are only the girls. Right. Only girls engineers, only girls yeah. uh, physiotherapy. After a while, I told them that before I was dancing. I was dancing Latino-Americano, mm-hmm. Caribbean uh, music. Uh, immediately, the, the engineers... Don't worry, I make in a few minutes a good, good for dance program. That's brilliant. Yes, I have. Um, it's, it's similar to, to salsa, yeah. salsa movement. Like yeah. Excellent. Michelle currently uses a button to indicate when he wants his muscles to contract. But the dream for Sartis is to use technology that can interpret the brain's intention to move. That movement plan Mackenzie was talking about earlier. And link it up to stimulation in the muscles eliminating the need for an external cue. And that's where the team who have worked with Michelle come in. There have been 
many people that actually try to directly link the interpretation of the movement intentions from the brain with artificial control of the muscles. That's Tomislav Milekovic, head of the Clinical and Translational Divisions at the Defitec Center for Interventional Neurotherapies, NeuroRestore, in Lausanne. Problems with this is that by doing this, one ends up controlling always more or less the same muscle fibers, which leads to accumulation of lactic acid and, and, and triggers cramps rather, rather soon. In fact, the human body deals with this problem in a rather different way. It tries to put some kind of trade-off between when to activate different muscle fibers. So, so it kind of almost like mixes it up as the movements are being, are being made. It kind of contracts these a bit and those a bit and so on and tries to pay attention that not too much lactic acid is accumulated around the same fibers. The second problem is that human body has a lot of muscles. And then if you are trying to control each and every muscle separately, the movements, if you want to make them in a very smooth and, and elegant way, as the person is usually doing them, you end up having to build very complicated systems that, that are trying to kind of replicate very smooth transitions of the, of the activity of these muscles. NeuroRestore's team have got around both these problems by interacting with the complex nerve infrastructure the motor circuits, rather than the muscles directly. And it starts by implanting electrodes into the body. So our system uses a paddle of electrodes that is implanted in the spinal canal. So if you imagine spinal cord as some kind of set of bones, very hard bones with a hole in the middle, with a canal in the middle that protects the spinal cord, which is that in that hole. But then spinal cord is surrounded by cerebrospinal fluid, the same fluid that is around the brain that protects the brain from different hits. It's also around the spinal cord. And, and then the sac that holds this cerebrospinal fluid is, is the dura. Then to kind of further soften any kind of disturbances, you have a layer of fat. So this is kind of like fine cushioning. So what we do, we put our pedal of electrodes just in this layer of fat. So fat is compressible. It can kind of be moved around, which makes this kind of insertion, this kind of surgery is very safe and provides very close interaction with the spinal cord circuitry. So... When we insert this lead of electrodes, we connect it to what we call the implantable pulse generator. So this pulse generator is very similar to a battery, which is just very well protected. So it's in a titanium uh, shielding. And then in a way, it looks like a pacemaker if, if one has ever seen one. This pulse generator then sends the electrical current into different electrodes of this panel of electrodes. So when Michel chooses a program on his tablet and links it up to the battery implanted in his abdomen, an electrical current is sent out from the paddle of electrodes. It passes first through that protective sac, the dura, or skin of the spinal cord, then enters the cerebral fluid and kind of spreads around. Now, stay with me here, it's a little complicated, I know. The sensory neurons that receive feedback on your muscles are located towards the back of the spine, and the motor neurons that allow movement are on the inner side. So, the electrical current first interacts with the sensory neurons and can imitate the information those sensory neurons would receive if the muscles were moving. This information, in the form of action potentials, the communication method of nerve cells, is then passed on. These action potentials either can directly go to the motor neurons in the spinal cord, which are the neurons that then directly send their connections to the muscles, 
or they can go to the interneurons, one neuron, which is then connected to the motor neuron. These signals that then come in, they also interact with other parts of the spinal cord circuitry, more or less a natural way, because this is the way how the body is receiving the information that, that is coming from, from the muscles and from the movements of different limbs. And this allows us to then synchronize the movements and the smooth, make them more natural. The amazing thing here is that the scientists have managed to take advantage of the remaining nerve infrastructure after a spinal cord injury to stimulate motor neurons and cause movement in a more natural way. And it works. Of the nine people in the clinical trial so far, all of them have had their ability to walk restored. But there are other advantages too. So apart from impairment of movement, which is by far the most known consequence of the spinal cord injury, people often suffer from other effects that I think less known in the wider public, but are actually to some extent, even more important to people with spinal cord injury. For example, they have very often lose the ability to sweat below the level of the spinal cord injury, which impacts their ability to regulate the body temperature. So there are actually many benefits that they get from going through this process of rehabilitation that's supported with the stimulation. What we have seen very early is that their ability to sweat has increased, their ability to sustain activity of the abdominal muscles, thoracic muscles have improved dramatically. In some cases, their ability to feel and also use some of their autonomous systems, so for example, like a bladder has improved. And we are actually currently working on many other applications of the spinal cord stimulation that would target potentially different parts of the spinal cord. One of the clinical trials that we, for example, have going on at the moment is looking really at stimulation of the thoracic spinal cords to restore the management of blood pressure to people with spinal cord injury. So a number of people with usually with high level spinal cord injury, they not only have a problem with moving their muscles, one of the major problems that they have is that their body is not able to anymore regulate the blood pressure. This is a very important system for any person, which is when you stand up from the bed, the body just has to increase or kind of contract your blood vessels in order to be able to circulate the blood all the way to the head, which is above the heart. If that connection is severed, one loses the ability to regulate the constriction of blood vessels and manage the blood pressure. So in effect, when that kind of person tries to stand up from the bed or someone else tries to make them stand up from the bed, their blood pressure can drop dramatically and they can lose, even lose consciousness. And by stimulating the thoracic spinal cord, what we have found is that we can manage the blood pressure. And now, the NeuroRestore team are making great progress extending their work to the upper body as well as studies that combine both technology to read out movement intention in the brain and stimulation of movement. There's also potentially scope for new technology that would restore sensation too, which we'll be covering later on in the series when we take a closer look at the sense of touch. But for Tomislav, it's also key that the work is useful for more people. Most of the advancements that we did so far have been more or less done in the lab here at the Lausanne University Hospital. We are working on the systems that people could take home. For example, Michael is currently trying a system that will allow him to trigger the stimulation just with the sensors on his body. He's already actively using the system with the buttons. We are trying our hardest to 
make sure that this kind of therapy can actually be widespread, that it can be used in pretty much any center around the world without the need for experts that they have trained in neuromodulation for years that can be used by pretty much any surgical team, any clinical team anywhere in the world. Okay, so the idea is that this is, this is going to be a system which can be used in a widespread way and without too much input from the research team. It's something that becomes a standard issue for people. Our desire is really to have it as a pacemaker in a way, you know, something where you would go in a hospital, this would be a standard therapy, you would schedule a surgical treatment, you would get a surgery where the system would be implanted, and then there would be a short period of initialization and, and tuning, and after this you would go home and, and use it as part of your everyday life. Accessibility of the technology is also really important to Michel, as he told me. My life uh, changed uh, three times. Okay. I was a person before the accident. I was another person after the accident. Uh, and now I have uh, another completely different person with the stimulation. Mm. When um, the research was published on the nature, immediately after I received a lot of uh, messages from people uh, from everywhere all around the world with a lot of kind of story. A lot of people are looking for uh, hope somewhere and... Uh, they find a light uh, in the corner and uh, they thank me for uh, this kind of message and uh, ask me some uh, advice how to, to do something like the, the studies that I did. And uh, people that ask me also ask me uh, which kind of exercise or rehabilitation they needed to do. Yes, I hope that everyone can use this uh, technology from uh, every age, every, everywhere with no difference of place. Mm. Ah, because uh, I can feel that the body changed completely. You, you are another person after. Mm. It's an important message for the families of those who have been injured too, as Michelle's brother Manuel told us. You see, your brother is the big uh, older brother. So for you, for me, he was always the superhero. And uh, see him uh, like in a difficult moment that uh, it was said ins inside me. But now with uh, the technology, it's like he became an hero for everybody. After our demo, Michelle and his family laid out a meal for us. I would have to say that meeting Michelle and his wonderful family is one of those days that truly changes you. Whatever's going on in your life, meeting someone like him who is so relentlessly positive, regardless of what is going on, and driven to find an answer is really humbling. And not only is he trying to help himself, but he's working really hard to help others who find themselves in his situation. I'd like to say thank you so much to Michelle Rocati, Mackenzie Mathis, Tomislav Milekovic and Michelle's family for hosting us. And that's it for this week. We're back in a few weeks to explore the neuroscience of autism. In the meantime... Join us in two weeks for another one of our focus episodes where Eva's exploring the neuroscience of sport. I'm Anna Machen and this is How We're Wired. This has been a Fresh Air production for the Bertarelli Foundation. Subscribe or follow now for free so you never miss an episode.